I'm sure uh, you all know the experience of having someone promise you something and then uh, the thing that they promise never seems to materialise. So whether it's uh, the junk mail letter that you get telling you you've won a fantastic uh, cash prize or a timeshare or whether it's, uh, it's, it's the builder that says that your loft conversion is going to be finished in a few months and then years later it's the work still going on. Uh, and you know how it feels. When you first get the promise, you're really excited, you're full of hope. But then as time goes on, you begin to doubt whether uh, it's really ever going to materialise. And the longer you have to wait, the more uncertain we get. And I think in the passage that we're looking at today, Abraham must have felt a bit like that. In the past few weeks, we've been looking at these amazing promises that God made to Abraham. But here we are in Genesis 17, and it's 25 years later, and nothing's happened. And Abraham must have been thinking, well, what is going on? So we're going to look at this passage together and try and work out what is going on. This passage, uh, it was a long passage, as Richard said, and it contains these two stories. At first sight, uh, they look like completely different stories, but actually they've got a lot of things in common. They're both stories where the Lord appears to Abraham. Now that doesn't actually happen very often in the Old Testament where we're told the Lord appears to someone. But here's two stories like that, back to back, that happen within a few months of each other. And in both of these stories, God reaffirms his promises to Abraham. In particular, he reaffirms his promise that he'll bless Abraham with descendants. And in both of these stories, we get the response of laughter because these promises just seem so unlikely. So in the first one, in chapter 17, Abraham laughs. In the second one, in chapter 18, his wife Sarah laughs. So these stories have several things in common and they fit together to teach us something very important about God, something that Abraham needed to learn, something that Sarah needed to learn and something that we need to learn as well. And to understand what it is, we need to think about the context of this passage. And in fact, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 17, we see that the author of this passage wants us to think about the context as well. The author tells us when these things happened, they happened when Abraham was 99 years old. And the author tells us that to remind us that God's promises have still not been fulfilled when God first made his promise to Abraham back in chapter 12, we're told Abraham was 75 years old. That was a quarter of a century before this. Even uh, in that passage where God reaffirms his promises in chapter 15, that's still at least 13 years ago. So God promised that Abraham would have descendants as numerous as the stars, that he would inherit the entire land that God has t- took him to. That, he, that the whole of the earth would be blessed through him. And he'd waited 24 years, and what has he got? Just one son by his wife's servant, Hagar. And the question we're, we're prompted to ask when we come to chapter 17 is why? Why the delay? Abraham must have been thinking the same thing. He got all these fine-sounding arguments, uh, fine-sounding promises in in chapter 12 and chapter 15. They sounded brilliant. 
But that was years ago, decades ago. Why haven't the promises materialised? Well, I want to suggest a reason why God delays in fulfilling his promises. I think he delays to make sure that fulfilling his promises is humanly impossible. By the time we get to this chapter, chapter 17 in Genesis, God has made it humanly impossible to fulfil the promises that he's made. Let's have a think about how he does this. Well, first of all, according to Genesis 11, Abraham's wife Sarai was barren before they even came to the promised land. Was that a coincidence? Of course not. It was planned by God. And Sarah says as much in chapter 16. She says, The Lord has kept me from having children. So it was the Lord that did it. So when God promised Abraham that he would be a great nation, that his descendants would be like the stars in the heavens, he'd already put something in place to make the fulfilment of that promise impossible. He closed Sarai's womb, then he gave the promise. So for Abraham to believe that promise, for Abraham to believe that that would happen, meant not just believing that God could predict the future, that he somehow could see the future, but that he could actually control the future, that he could create a future that was humanly impossible. But we don't naturally trust God so easily, do we? Uh, it goes against our fallen nature. And when we're in situations like that, like Abraham's in, what usually happens is this. We try to think of ways that we can make it happen by ordinary human means. And that's exactly what Abraham does. So he looks for humanly possible ways of fulfilling God's promises. And we see that first back in chapter 15, the passage you looked at last week. God reminds Abraham uh, that he's going to make him into a great nation. And Abraham says this, I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. See, Abraham, he just can't work out how God is going to fulfil his promises. Lord, you promised to make me in a great nation, but how, how can that be? I haven't got any kids. And, and this servant, Eliezer, he's my heir. Is that how you're going to do it? Surely that's your plan, yeah? You're going to, you're going to uh, raise up this nation through him, my legal heir. But God cuts off Abraham's escape route. No, Abraham, my my promise will not be fulfilled in that way. My way will be humanly impossible. You'll become a great nation through your own physical seed. So chapter uh, 15 verse 4 says, This man will not be your heir, but a child, a son, coming from your own body. But there's another way that Abraham tries to make God's promise humanly possible. You see, God had only said that this son would come from Abraham's body. He didn't say anything about Sarah at that time. So, I guess it's technically possible that God could fulfil this promise by Abraham sleeping with someone else. And that's exactly what Abraham tries in chapter 16. Now, Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. 
but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go and sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build up a family through her. And Abraham does what she says. And in verse 15, Hagar bore Abraham a son and Abraham gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. An ingenious plan. Sarah was barren. God had made her barren. Surely this is what God had in mind. But that's not the way that God was going to fulfil his promises. And we can see that here in, uh, in chapter 17 where God elaborates these promises to Abraham. So look down at verses 15 and 16. As for Sarai, your wife, you're no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will become a mother of nations, kings of people, peoples will come from her. So God is going to fulfil his promise by giving Sarah a son. And Abraham can't quite uh, get his head around this at first and he seems to still want God to fulfil his promise in a humanly possible way. So, so he laughs at the thought of Sarah having a son. Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael would live under your blessing. So God has to tell him again, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son. And you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. What a setback that must have been for Abraham. He thought he'd figured it out. He thought he'd worked out how to, to fulfil God's promise. But God says, no, I'm going to do it the impossible way. And so Abraham's faith wavered. And he laughed at the idea. And in the next chapter, chapter 18, we get this amazing promise repeated, this time in the hearing of Sarah. And similarly, when she hears this promise, it's so amazing, she laughs as well. So look at uh, chapter 18, verse 10. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I'm worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? So again, she see, this promise is so unlikely that she laughs in disbelief. And Sarah's words tell us another thing that makes God's promise humanly impossible to fulfil. We're told Sarah's past the age of childbearing. So not only has she been, she'd been barren for decades anyway, but now she was past the menopause. She was already infertile when she was young. Now she's too old as well. So God delayed in fulfilling his promise to make it humanly impossible. And it's no wonder that Abraham and Sarah both laugh about it, about it in this passage. It seemed unlikely enough 24 years ago, but now, if you pardon the pun, it's inconceivable. God sees, he makes sure right from the beginning by making Sarah infertile before he even makes the promise. Then he slams shut the door 
on every attempt by Abraham to, to fulfil his promise in a humanly possible way. And then just to be absolutely doubly certain, he waits another 24 years until Sarah's past the menopause and Abraham, in the words of Paul and, and the, the author of the Hebrews, is as good as dead. So he delays to make sure that it's humanly impossible to fulfil his promises. But why? Why does God do this? Why, why won't he opt for anything less than the path of impossibility? Well, I think uh, the clue to that is in the opening and closing verses of this passage this morning. Look at, verses, uh, look at verse 17, sorry, chapter 17, verse 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. God reveals himself as God Almighty. Now there's a lot of new names in this uh, passage, in this chapter, and they're all significant. So uh, Abraham is given a new name. He's given the name Abraham, and it's to be a sign to him that, uh, of God's promise that he will have descendants and many nations will come from him. To affirm her part in the promise, uh, Sarai is given a new name, Sarah. And we learn the name of their son to come. His name will be Isaac, remind, which means he laughs, reminding them of their reaction to God's promise. But also in this passage, God gets a new name as well. He says, I am God Almighty. In the Hebrew, it's El Shaddai. God is El Shaddai. It's the first time that this name is used for God in the Bible. And it speaks of God's power, his might, his omnipotence. He's God Almighty. He's able to do anything, even the humanly impossible. So right at the start of this passage, we've got God making this claim that he is God Almighty, El Shaddai. And uh, turn with me to the end of this passage, chapter 18, verses 13 to 14, we read this. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? You see, God wants to demonstrate that he is El Shaddai, God Almighty. He wants to show that nothing is too difficult for him. God makes it humanly impossible to fulfil his promises so that when he does, he magnifies his glory. So he doesn't want Abraham or Sarah to get any of the credit. He wants all the glory for himself when these promises are fulfilled. In plain English, he wants to make himself look good. When it happens, he wants everyone to know that it was him, El Shaddai, that brought it about. He wants to magnify his own glory and keep his people humbly dependent on his sovereign grace. He wants to magnify his own glory and keep his people humbly dependent on his sovereign grace. 
And actually, there's a pattern of God acting that way in the Bible. I'll give you a couple of examples. For example, it happens with Gideon in Judges chapter 7. I don't know if you remember the story, but uh, Gideon is facing an army of Midianites and Amalekites. There are, there are literally thousands of thousands of them all across the valley. We're told that they numbered as many as the sand on the seashore. And uh, Gideon has got just 10,000 men to face this vast, uncountable army. And what does God say to Gideon? He says this, you've got too many men. You've got too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. But Israel would become boastful, saying, my own power has delivered me. So God whittles down Gideon's army to just 300 men. It was already looking bad when Gideon had 10,000 men. Now it's, it's impossible. But God gives them the victory. And he does it because he wants the glory for the victory. He doesn't want the Israelites taking any of the credit. His purpose is to display his glory and to keep the Israelites utterly dependent on his sovereign grace. Another example is Elijah. Do you remember that story where uh, Elijah's on Mount Carmel with the priests of Baal and, uh, and uh, God set up this scene where he can reveal his glory. So, so the priests of Baal set up an altar with a sacrifice and Elijah does the same and both parties call on the name of their God and uh, the one who answers with fire and burns up the sacrifice, he is God, he's the real God. And the priests of Baal call out, they shout, they're dancing, they're cutting themselves with swords and uh, of course Baal doesn't answer. And then comes the time for, for the Lord to, to show himself. But before he does that, he wants to make absolutely sure that everyone knows that it's him. So he gets Elijah to, to douse the sacrifice in water, pours on gallons and gallons of water until it's soaking wet, until it's utterly impossible to set fire to it. And then God does just that. God acts in such a way as to magnify his glory and to keep his people humbly dependent on his sovereign grace. And that's what he's done here with Abraham. God planned and worked in such a way that he made his, his, made his promise utterly impossible so that when he fulfills it, he gets the glory. He shows himself to be El Shaddai, God Almighty, the God who can do the impossible. As you, as you sit here this morning, maybe... Many of you are in situations a bit like that. Situations where it feels impossible. Perhaps it's a difficult relationship, a, a marital situation, or a, or a child. Perhaps uh, it's a situation at work. Perhaps it's a physical situation or a financial situation. And you say to yourself, and you say to yourself, this is impossible. I, I don't know what to do. I've tried everything. There's no godly way out of this. This is impossible. Answer. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And if your attitude to that situation says yes, then you're wrong. Because the Lord is El Shaddai. God Almighty. The God who can do anything. And the Christian life 
is actually full of situations like that so that God can magnify his glory and keep you humbly dependent on his sovereign grace. So do you have a faith? Do you have faith in this God? Do you have faith in God as El Shaddai? Do you have faith that God can do the impossible? Let me ask you, what evidence is there in your daily life that you have faith in a God who can do the impossible? What evidence is there? Is your daily life marked by human self-reliance? Or is it marked by utter dependency on God's sovereign grace? Or what evidence is there in your prayers? Think about your prayers. What things have you been praying for this week? What things do you pray for day to day? How often do you pray for things that are humanly impossible. If someone was to read a transcript of your prayers from this week, would they conclude this man or this woman has faith in a God who can do the impossible? Would they conclude that? Now I'm not saying that that God will grant us anything we ask for that's humanly impossible. I'm not saying that, but if we believe that God can do that, wouldn't it be reflected in our prayers? I think far too often, our prayers are small because our faith in God is small. Jesus said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, then you would say to this mountain, move from here to there. If that's the kind of prayer that accompanies mustard seed sized faith and how big is your faith and what evidence is there in your evangelism are there members of your family or, or people at work or friends about whom you think oh, there's, no, there's no point trying to tell them the good news about Jesus they, they couldn't possibly become Christians Perhaps you've witnessed to them for a long time and, and it's just made no impact and you think, this, it's impossible. They're just too lost. Well, God would remind you from this passage that he is El Shaddai. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And that leads me to my final application, uh, which is this, that all of us who are Christians today have evidence that God does the impossible because he's done the impossible with you. You see, you may think that it, that it would be impossible if, if that friend or, or that colleague or that family member became a Christian. Well, you're right. Humanly speaking, it, it's impossible. It's impossible for anyone to become a Christian. It was impossible for you to become a Christian. But God did the impossible. For you to become a Christian wasn't a matter of human initiative. It was a matter of God's sovereign grace. Turn with me quickly to, to Romans chapter 9. 
where uh, the Apostle Paul refers back to the story that we've been looking at in Genesis. Romans chapter 9. In this chapter, Paul is struggling with the heartache of seeing many of his fellow Jews who are not believing in Jesus Christ. Does that mean that God's promise of, uh, to the Jewish people has failed? Does that mean that God's promise to Abraham failed? Paul answers in uh, verse 9, No, it's not as though God's word had failed. And he goes on to explain this. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are descendants are they all Abraham's children. In other words, to be an heir of the promise uh, made to Abraham, you can't just be a product of, of ordinary human reproduction. And Paul refers to the story we've been looking at and the way that Isaac came into being and to explain what he means. In verse 7 he says, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, not Ishmael, not, uh, not the fruit of Abraham's human self-reliance, but through Isaac, the child that God brought into being when it was humanly impossible. And then in verse 8, Paul brings out uh, the general principle that he wants to bring out from this story. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but the children of the promise who were regarded as Abraham's offspring. What's the difference between uh, natural children and children of the promise? Well, the difference is that ordinary human resources bring natural children into being, but the sovereign power of God brings children of the promise into being. And you see that in verse 9. For this was how the promise was stated, at the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. In other words, Abraham tried to make an heir for God's promise by human initiative. If only Ishmael would live under your blessing. But God said no. Heirs of the promise come into being through supernatural, divine intervention. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be an heir of God's covenant promises. If you're a Christian today, that's how you became a Christian. The fact that you're a Christian is evidence that God does the impossible. And he did it in order to magnify his glory and to keep you humbly dependent on his sovereign grace. You can't take any of the credit. You've got nothing to boast in. It was all God. He gets all the glory. Let me conclude. The passage that, that we've looked at this morning isn't one where Abraham is depicted uh, as having no faith. In fact, we saw last week that, that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But he is depicted as someone whose faith has not yet matured. His faith was growing. His faith needed to be pushed beyond its present limit. God wanted his faith to be in El Shaddai, the God who is able to do the humanly impossible. 
if you're a Christian today, then, then you have faith. You've shown that faith in your decision to follow Jesus, just as Abraham followed God's call. But does your faith need to grow? Does your faith need pushing beyond its present limit? Is your faith in a God who can do the humanly impossible? Is that reflected in your daily life? Is that reflected in your prayers? Is that reflected in your evangelism? Or does our faith need to mature to that level? What are the impossible situations that God has put you in? What are the opportunities that he's got to magnify his glory, to keep you dependent on his sovereign grace?